Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs and the Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Luke. Uh, You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Last week we introduced a series, um, and in the next few weeks we'll be in this series, uh, on true flourishing. What does it mean to truly flourish? And last week I mentioned Amazon, and how Amazon is an example of consumerism. And now, you know, hear me, Amazon's, you know, like not like the enemy or something like that. But I just, I just said Amazon's just an example of consumerism. Consumerism gives this lie, right, that says uh, uh, if you buy more stuff, you'll be happy. If you just consume more, you'll be happy. And it's a lie because it overpromises and underdelivers. If you, if you don't, if you're not tracking with what I'm saying, go back uh, last week on our podcast. Wherever you stream podcasts, you can look up Ankeny Gospel Church, shameless plug, and um, you can listen to the first uh, week of the series. It was on Psalm 1 and how Psalm 1, it's not the person who just gets more and more and more stuff. It's actually the person who fills their mind, meditates on the law of the Lord. Anyway, all that to say is I mentioned Amazon, and uh, after church, I was walking outside with Kyle Bamberger, and he starts laughing, and he's like, did you see that? And I was like, what? He's like, an Amazon truck just drove past us. Did you see what it said? I was like, no. He goes, it said, warning contents may cause happiness so i have a picture of it up here yep there it is um on the screen and it literally i mean there it is that's it says it you know i i think i mentioned that you know sometimes this lie is subtle but that lie is not so subtle i mean there it is like if you buy more stuff you'll be happy anyway uh, if you're new, my name is Parker McGoldrick. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at Ankeny Gospel Church and we're in a series this summer on true flourishing. What does it mean to truly flourish? And we're tracing this theme through the Psalms, and more specifically, we're actually tracing just a single word through the entire Psalter, and it's this word happy or blessed. And it's the very first word of Psalm 1, so the the entire book of Psalms, all 150 Psalms, they start with this word happy. And today we're going to see, last week we saw that happiness was meditating on the law of the Lord. And I don't know about you, but we did like a little uh, experiment in the sermon. Uh, it wasn't an experiment. I 
you know, I, I plan on it. But basically, like, uh, what, what somebody who meditates on the law of the Lord is constantly repeating the truths of Scripture to themselves, the character of God to themselves. And and last week, we we had an opportunity to do that. And I don't know about you, but the the feeling, the um, freedom that I felt when doing that was palpable. I mean, think about, again, Exodus 34, five, uh, 6 and 7. Think about this phrase, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh God is a God, merciful and gracious. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is merciful, filled with mercy. And he is gracious. He is so gracious. He's slow to anger. Slow to anger. Do you need do you need somebody who's slow to anger in your life right now? And he's abounding in steadfast love and loyalty and faithfulness. That's just a brief meditation on the law of the Lord. And it just fills me with so much freedom. So that's what we talked about last week. That true happiness, true flourishing, true freedom. That exhale moment when you actually are your truest self comes when you fill your mind, your mouth, your body, your soul with the word of God. So today we're going to see that true happiness, true flourishing is found in total surrender. Total surrender. If you truly want to flourish, if you truly want to be happy, we have to wave the white flag and say, I need to seek refuge in something else outside of me because I cannot protect myself. I need, to, I, I need to get my identity even from someone outside of me because I can't make my identity myself. If you truly want to be hap- happy, you have to surrender fully and completely. You have to submit. You have to let go. You have to seek refuge from something outside of yourself. I mean, let's look, let's look at the end of this psalm, Psalm 2, to, to just see where we're going today. I like to do that sometimes. I like to like look into the future. We'll look in the future. I like to start with the end and then back up and then get there. So that's what we're going to do. Look at look at verse 12 of Psalm 2 and just look at the very last sentence of Psalm 2 verse 12. It says this, all who take refuge in him are happy. All who take refuge in him are happy. There it is. Here's the truth. That true happiness, true flourishing, true freedom comes when you surrender and you take refuge in Christ. Now, depending on who you talk to today, the idea that total surrender leads to true happiness is like ridiculous. And you know why? Because we live surrounded by the lie that true happiness and flourishing is actually the absence of authority. Sometimes we don't even recognize it because it's just in the culture, it's the air we breathe, it's the waters we swim in, that true happiness is just to remove any and all authority in your life. Now, quick caveat. I'm going to be using the word authority a lot. I'm going to be using the word submit a lot and surrender a lot. I just want to make it crystal clear that the only thing I am talking about is submitting and surrendering to the authority of God. That's it. I am not talking about a political party. I am not talking about a person, an individual person. I'm not even talking about like, I'm not talking about anything. I'm talking like you're whatever I'm talking now. Does your submission to God's authority, you know, trickle down into submission to other authorities? Yes, it does. Like if you're a child, you submit to the authority of your parents. If you're a member of a church, you submit your authority to the pastors, et cetera, et cetera. But when I say submission to authority and surrender, I am referring primarily, almost exclusively, to our surrender to God. 
I mean, that verse, all who take refuge in him are happy. It's it's in Yahweh and in his Messiah, which we're going to get there. I just spoiled it completely. It's in Jesus, okay? <laughs> all who take refuge in Jesus are truly happy, truly flourishing. Why? Because they have surrendered. They have humbled themselves. They have let go from trying to control their own life, and they have submitted to the authority of Jesus. But why is it so hard to, especially in today's culture, why is it so hard to believe this truth that true authority comes from submission? Because we live in a culture, excuse me, we live in a culture that says, it's just the, again, it's the air we breathe, that says true freedom, true happiness, true flourishing comes when you get rid of all other authority in your life. If you really want to live as a human being, then you have to be completely autonomous. You have to live a life in which you are in the driver's seat. There's no person, there's no thing, there's no institution, there's no government, there's no culture that can import their own rule and standard on your life because true freedom and true happiness and true flourishing is you making your own rule and standard for your own life. If you truly want to be happy, then you do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want it. You make up your own rules, you do whatever you want. Nobody can tell you what to do. Now, we see this, right? We see this in kids when it's like they finally, they're like, oh, I can't wait to get into high school because then I'll really be free and I'll be able to get my license and it gets, you know, no more authority. And then you get your license and you're in high school and you're like, oh, I can't wait to get to college because then I get like so much freedom and it's not like just class from seven to two, whatever, eight to three. I don't know when school is anymore. Uh, Just so much freedom. And then you get out of college and you're like, finally, no more professors like tell me what to do. And then you get your first job and you're like, Blah, blah, blah. You're always looking for freedom to get rid of authority in your life. And then you're like about to, you've worked for X amount of years. I'm not just going to, I'm not going to put a number on it. X amount of years. And you're about to retire. And you're like, finally, when I retire, I can be the only authority in my life. I don't have to answer to anybody. Right? We view that as freedom. We view that as happiness. We view that as living the life, the life in which you are. Uh, in control of your own life. And we also talk about if anybody else tries to control your life, then they're manipulating you. They're an authoritarian. They're a narcissist. You know, no one can import their own standard of living on your life. Let me let me explain it another way. Um, Charles, Ta- Charles Taylor is this really, really smart um, philosopher, and he's um, dead. Well, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> it's not really relevant. I mean, he is dead, but it doesn't whatever. Charles Taylor is this old philosopher, deceased philosopher, who wrote this book called A Secular Age. And when I say book, I mean more like uh, like five books. It's, it's huge. It is a huge book. And full transparency, I have read about a quarter of it. And then I stopped and I read another guy who wrote a book on how to read that book. And it's much shorter. So essentially, I read the spark notes of this. But the spark notes of Charles Taylor's book was a book in and of itself. It was like 150 pages. So anyway, all, all that to say is is, is there's this, uh, Char- Charles Taylor talks about these two ages that we have come from and that we now live in. The first is what he calls the age of authority. The age of authority. And the age of authority was from, you know, millennia ago to, like centuries ago, to the mid early to mid-1900s. And what this age was is that your identity your security, who you were, it came from the authorities in your life. So like who you were as a person was kind of like given to you by the authority in your life. It could have been your parents who said, hey, this is who you are. 
I, I even think about in the in the Hebrew Bible when people would name and really in most of um, um, Eastern cultures today, even they name you as to what you're going to be or what they hope that you're going to be. Like that's kind of like an age of authority where your identity is given to you by either your parents or by your culture, by your community, by your village. Right. Think about like um, say a town was like without a butcher and, you know, because so-and-so was a butcher, but he died and he didn't have any sons. And so his, and his daughters were married off. So there's no butcher. Well, now my identity is kind of given to me by the needs of the village of the community. Now there are pros and cons to this. We're not going to get into that right now, but that was the age of authority where who you are was kind of given to you by the authority that, uh, uh by, by the authority in your life. Contrast that with where we live today in what Charles Taylor called the age of authenticity, the age of authenticity and what the age of authenticity is. And it came about for a number of ways. It's basically like, well, your identity and who you are comes from inside you, your true, authentic self, where you have to discover your true self and then you have to express your true self to everybody else. And then the rub is that if anybody tells you something else other than your true self and they're oppressive. And if you try to, you know, get rid of your true self because you think it's bad or you think you should be somebody else, then you're actually repressing your your own true self and you're not living out in yourself, your true self in the age of authenticity. All of this to say, we've had the age of authority. Now we live in the age of authenticity. All of this to say, the point is this, we live in the age of authenticity where you have to discover your true self. You have to express your true self. And in this age, we have an allergic reaction to any authority. We say that true happiness, true flourishing comes when you are absolutely free from anybody else's authority in your life. And by the way, I'm saying we, because Christians are not impervious to this. I'm not just talking about the culture out there. I'm talking about all of us in here. We actually are probably just a little more blinded to the reality of it in our own lives than other people. I mean, have you ever experienced that before? That allergic reaction to authority? Say you're, um, you're with someone and somebody just like tells you what to do, even if it's just casual or benign, like, Hey, you should go see that movie. And you think to yourself, well, (laughs) well, I was going to go see the movie, but now that you told me to see that movie, I definitely don't want to see that movie. You ever, you ever felt that? Or, or maybe like, oh, man, this restaurant's so good. If you like pizza, you have to get this restaurant. Well, now I'm not going to. Dang it. I was definitely going to do that because I love pizza. But now because you told me to, I'm not going to. Right? Maybe it's a little more serious. Somebody says, hey, I think you should really reach out to that person. Like, they're kind of like, like lonely or I know they like look up to you. And I think it would mean a lot to them if you just shot them a text. Well, you, know, you can't tell me what to do. I can think of that on my own. Thank you very much. Or, hey, I, th- I, I think like you, you might want to like really apologize. That seemed a little, um, that seemed a little rude. And if, I, if I'm interpreting this correctly, like help me understand this, but I think you might want to apologize. Oh, well, you don't, you weren't there. You don't know the situation. You don't know everything that was going on. Or maybe it's like, hey, I, I think, you know, I've seen this pattern in your life. Like there was this decision and we talked about that, but then it seemed like there was another decision and another decision and another decision. And I just kind of, I'm kind of seeing this, this thing in your life. And I just, I want to make sure is everything, is everything okay? Am I, am I interpreting this correctly or incorrectly? If, if not, this seems like it needs to be addressed. This is pretty, pretty serious. Well, who are you to tell me that? Huh? Well, why don't you take out the log out of your own eye before you look at the log in my eye? 
well, you think you're holier than thou and you can just go around pointing at other people's flaws. What is that? That is an allergic reaction to any authority. And you know what the lie beneath all of this is? The lie beneath all of this is that if you do things your own way, you'll be happy. If you get rid of all authority and, I'll just throw the word accountability in there, if you get rid of authority and accountability in your life, you'll flourish. I mean, think about the phrases that we say. We say, my way or the highway, you do you. We literally have a song by Frank Sinatra called My Way. You know what the lyrics are? I did it. I did it my way. The lie is that true happiness is the absence of authority. And how do we know it's a lie? Because as like, like we said last week, lies always overpromise and underdeliver. This lie overpromises because it tells you that you can actually be happy, you can actually flourish if you get rid of all uh, authority in your life, and it underdelivers. Because what's the cost of living this lie? The cost of living this lie is loneliness. You know why? Because people who are lonely, I'm not talking about like circumstantially lonely. I'm talking about people who, who, who do not have any authority in their lives are unable to sustain relationships because a sustained relationships requires vulnerability. And you know what vulnerability requires? You not being in control. That sounds miserable to me. That doesn't sound like flourishing. That sounds like absolute loneliness. Another underdeliver. So it overpromises, it underdelivers in another way, and it's anxiety. It's people who are anxious constantly about everything. You wake up, you're anxious. You go to sleep, you're anxious. It's in the middle of the day, you're anxious. You know what that anxiety comes from? It comes from you trying to control everything in your own life and realizing that you can't. When we live this lie that true flourishing True flourishing comes from the absence of authority. It leads to loneliness and it leads to anxiety and a whole host of other things. But here's the truth. Guys, here's the truth. True flourishing, true happiness comes when you surrender totally to Jesus' authority. When you submit to the king, when you put, your own, you put down your own rights, quote unquote, to pursue happiness and you serve Yahweh and his son Jesus. In other words, if you truly want to live, if you want to flourish, if you want to be happy, you must absolutely, totally, completely surrender. You must seek refuge in the Lord and his authority and you must submit to Jesus. Here's a succinct way to put it and it's going to be on the uh, slide behind me. Surrendering to the authority of God it looks like bondage to the world, but in reality, it leads to true happiness and flourishing. So surrendering leads to flourishing. But rebelling, guys, rebelling against the authority of God, it looks like freedom. It looks like happiness. It looks like flourishing, but it actually leads to and produces slavery and destruction of all kinds. Surrendering leads to flourishing. Rebelling leads to destruction. What, what do you want? Hmm? What do you want in life? Because if you, if you want flourishing, if you want the flourishing that Yahweh, the Lord promises, where despite your circumstances and your environments, you are happy, you are content, you are like a tree planted by streams of water, then you cannot half hold on to the cares of this world and half release your, your surrender and submission to the Lord. 
You can't. You cannot have one fist closed, grabbing on to control and trying to get rid of all authority in your life, and another hand open trying to surrender authority to God. You have to let go with both hands. You have to humble yourself, surrender, submit to him, and take refuge in him. Surrender leads to flourishing. Rebellion leads to destruction. Now, that was a lot. I feel like I just skipped my sermon and went straight to the end. We, we, looked, at the, we looked at the last sentence of verse 12. Right. But what we're going to do now is we're going to go back through Psalm two and we're going to look at how I didn't just, you know, make all this up one day in my basement when I was, you know, thinking the psalm is divided. (laughs) I thank you for that. The psalm is divided up into four scenes, four scenes, scene one, scene two, scene three, scene four. And each scene has a different character. It has a a different setting and it has a different speaker. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these four scenes individually to get to where we just were, which is that true flourishing I'm uh, sorry, sur- total surrender leads to true flourishing. So scene one, scene one of Psalm two, verses one through three says this. Verse one, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Okay, let's pause right here. Who are these characters? Who's the characters of this scene? Well, we have a lot of characters. We have, look at verse one, we have nations, we have peoples. In verse two, we have kings and we have rulers. So we have, we have a lot of characters, nations, like that's a lot of people, peoples, that's, you know, a lot of peoples, kings and rulers. So we have the, the, the rulers, the kings, the peoples, the nations. I feel like I'm just, sorry, I just totally repeated that three times as if repeating it will get the point across. Maybe it will. That's a lot of people. That is a lot of people. And what are they doing? Look at what they're doing. What are the nations doing? The nations are raging. Think of an ocean. Think of a storm. Think of a tempest. It rages. It's not just angry. It's not just like, oh, hey, stop. It's like it's stirred up. Look at what the peoples are doing. The peoples are what? Plotting. They're plotting in vain. They're getting together and they're like, let's, you ever plot when you're a kid? Like plot how to like, convince you know mom and dad to let you stay over at your friend's house or watch that movie that's a plot but imagine they're plotting in vain like it's not gonna happen sorry to break it to you kid it's not gonna happen the kings the kings of the earth verse two what are the kings of the earth doing they're taking their stand this is military imagery they're literally like like uh girding themselves up they're armoring up and they're taking their stand ready to fight and then what are the rulers doing the rulers are conspiring who are they conspiring They're conspiring together. Against whom? Against Yahweh and his anointed one. Against Yahweh and his anointed one. You know what the Hebrew word for anointed one is? It's the word Messiah. Literally, it literally says against Yahweh and his Messiah. Now, when you and I hear the word Messiah 2,000 years after Christ, we think, oh, Jesus, that's Jesus. And that's true, but also Messiah meant it was used before Jesus as well. And it wasn't just like always like a pointing forward to Jesus. It was used to like actual people. There were three types of people that were anointed or that were Messiahs, many like lowercase m Messiahs in the Old Testament. First, prophets were anointed ones. Prophets were many or like they were messiahs. I don't know why I keep saying mini messiahs. Uh, Lowercase m messiahs. Prophets were lowercase m messiahs in that they were anointed by God to bring the word of God to the people of God. So you have prophets, 
You also have priests. Priests were messiahs. They were anointed by God to do the work of the, uh, of the temple, to offer sacrifices, to be mediators between God and man, to, to bring about you know, God's uh, uh, presence to, to, to the people. So you have prophets, you have priests, and then the third group of people that were messiahs or anointed ones were kings. Kings were messiahs. They were anointed by God to rule to rule the people in justice, in peace, in righteousness, to rule them to flourish. And actually, the, the commands to rule were don't accumulate wives, don't accumulate money, and don't accumulate military power. So the ideal king, according to the Bible, is not somebody who tries to win on their own, but rather is anointed by God, a Messiah, and rules with love, with justice, with peace, and brings about flourishing the land. So all of these people, that, that's, that's what it means to be a messiah that's what messiah means all these people the nations the peoples the kings the rulers they're against yahweh and his messiah and what do they say let's look at verse three they say this let's tear off their chains let's throw their ropes off of us now this is profound look at how they view and perceive yahweh's rule and reign how do they perceive yahweh's rule and reign they perceive Yahweh's rule and reign as chains and as ropes. They perceive God as binding, as literally bondage, as slavery, as like the, the thing in the way from getting what they truly want. Have you ever experienced this before? In other, you've seen this in other people's lives and you've seen it in your own life? You're interacting with your friend at work or school who doesn't know the Lord, and, and they, they view God as a God who's like, you know, who, who gets in the way of what they want. Like, oh, could God really say that, you know, he's just the, like, that Jesus is the only way? Like, oh, you're telling me that God's law is actually to like, no, God, I want to be able to do what I want. I want to be able to do this. I want to be able to do that. God, if, God, if I get religious, if I get God in my life, then I won't be able to do that stuff. That's binding to me. How can Jesus claim to be the only way? That's exclusive. That's binding. Right? You've seen that in other people's lives. Maybe you've seen that in your own life. Well, I'll follow Jesus, but as soon as he tells me what to do with my wallet and my money, well, then that's just like, that's just bondage. You know, that's just like, oh, that's legalistic. We love throwing that word around. That's legalistic. Really? Or maybe we just have an allergic reaction to authority like these nations, peoples, kings, and rulers in Psalm 2. That's scene one. Next, scene two. Verse four. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, and the Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger, and he terrifies them in his wrath. And he says this, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Okay, let's pause here. Who, who, who now is the character? The character here is Yahweh. And where is he? He's not on the earth with the nations, the peoples, the kings, and the rulers. He is in heaven, and he laughs. By the way, laughs, ridicules, um, anger, wrath. That sounds really, like, angry. This isn't so much anger as much as it is, like, Yahweh is just not threatened. I mean, literally, multitudes of peoples are rebelling against the Lord, and he's just not threatened at all. And look at what he says in verse 6. This is interesting. We're going to come back to this. How does he respond to the nations, the peoples, the kings, and the rulers. How does he respond? He doesn't say, now, if it were me, <laughs> if it were me, I love saying that. Actually, no, I don't love saying that. Like, if if I were God, you know, whatever. Uh, if it were me, I would probably, if the nations were raging, the peoples were plot, if everybody was against me, I would be like, okay, well, fine, goodbye. 
right? But what does he do instead? What does Yahweh do? He speaks to them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath, and he says this, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Interesting. Yahweh's response to rebellion is installing a king in Zion. Okay, hold that in your mind, and we're going to come back to that. But that's scene two. Yahweh is speaking. He is completely unthreatened by this rebellion from these thousands and thousands of people, millions of people. And he installs a king in response to their rebellion. That's scene two. Now, scene three. A new character. We're going to find out who it is. The, I will de- verse 7. I will declare Yahweh's decree. He said to me, so Yahweh is speaking to this person, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like pottery. Okay. There is... There is so much here. I mean, like, guys, these three verses, books and books and books have been written on this with the messianic overtones, like who is the son that he's speaking to, what's going on, all this stuff. We do not have time to get into that today at all, in fact. <laughs> but uh, later this week, another shameless plug, I'll, I'll be putting up um, a podcast on our podcast, and it'll be titled The Study Notes, and, you know, I do this every once in a while. So go... Uh, this week and listen to that. It'll just be some extra commentary and some study notes on Psalm 2, verse 7, 8, and 9. So be on the lookout for that. But what I will say this for now is in this context, who, who is talking to whom? Yahweh is talking to this king that apparently that he installed in Zion. What does he call him? He says, you are my son. Now, the son of God was another title used by kings in ancient Israel. So if you were a king in ancient Israel, like David or Solomon or whatever, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, all these, all those kings, they were called the son of God. So this is, this could be referring to a king in general, but we know this as referring to who? To the king above all kings, to the only son of God, our Lord, Jesus, the Messiah. So Yahweh says this to Jesus, you are my son, today I have become your father. And then what does he promise him? He promises him everything. So in that case, what does God own? Who owns everything? I just, I just answered my own question. Who, who owns everything? God, the Father, Yahweh. I mean, if he says, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. In order to give away the nations that were raging in verse 1, and in order to give away the ends of the earth, you have to what? You have to own them. So who owns everything? Yahweh. And who is he giving them to? He's giving them to his son, He's giving them to his son, his king, who that he installed on Zion, his holy mountain. Now, what on earth does this mean? Again, if you're reading this in ancient Israel, you're like, oh, yeah, like the king is now in control and he's in charge. If you're reading this through the lens of Christ, you see that Jesus was not joking around at the end of the Gospel of Matthew when he said, all authority in heaven has been given to me. Who is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords? Who is the eternal son, our Lord, who is begotten, not made from the father? 
Jesus the Christ. So who is Psalm 2 talking about? Well, sure, it's talking about a king, you know, in ancient Israel, like David or like Solomon, but it's it's not just talking about that. It's talking about the king of all kings. And what's he going to do? He's going to break them with an iron scepter, and he's going to shatter them like pottery. Guys, this is so cool. In Revelation and in a bunch of other places, it says that the Lord is going to return with a rod of iron and a sword in his mouth. You know how Jesus didn't rule the nations and didn't possess the ends of the earth? He didn't do it with a sword and killed everybody. Instead, he did it with his word, with his life, with his speech, with his actions, with his love, with his selflessness. And how did he do it to the end? He did it by doing what? By submitting to the Father's will. Would Jesus have accomplished his mission if he did not submit to the Father's will? No. He said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. He said, I cannot do anything except that which the Father has told me and given me permission to do. And so we see in in the king that Yahweh installed on Zion, in the son of God, who God is going to give all the nations as his inheritance, all the end of the earth as his possession, we see the way in which he rules and reigns, and it is in total submission and surrender to God. (laughs) That's beautiful. That is just beautiful. So what's the response? Scene four. Verse 10. So now, kings, remember the kings of, of the first verse, of, uh, of verse 2? What's your response? Be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with reverential awe. Rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son. Okay, let's stop here. Look at all these commands. Guys, look at these commands. In, in verse 10, be wise. Receive instruction. Serve the Lord. Rejoice. Pay homage. I see five commands there. What, what do all of these commands have in common? Let's walk through these. Let's think about these. First, be wise. You know what wisdom is? James 3 talks about wisdom as being from above. In order for it to be from above, it can't be from what? Within. It can't be from underneath. It can't be within you, which means that if, in order to be wise, in order to have wisdom that is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, for, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy, we have to receive it from above. You know, what, you know what's required of us to receive something? Our hands have to be open. We have to humble ourselves. We have to literally open our hands and receive a gift. So if, 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 in order for us to be wise... And if wisdom is from above, we have to humble ourselves. Happy is the man who finds wisdom, Proverbs 3 says. Wisdom is a tree of life, and those who hold on to her are happy. Can you hold on to something while also holding on to something else? No. Can you hold on to wisdom while also holding on to your own devices? No. Can Adam and Eve hold on to the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and also hold on to the fruit of the tree of life? No. Wisdom requires us to receive, to humble ourselves. So that's the first command. Be wise. Humble yourself. Receive this wisdom. Next command. Excuse me. Next command. Receive instructions. Receive instruction. And what was Psalm 1 about? Meditating on the instruction of the Lord day and night. You know what you have to do to receive instruction? You have to humble yourself. You have to surrender. You have to submit. Because you can't write the rules on your own. You can't do it. How many times in your own life have you written the rules on your own? You've jumped in the driver's seat. You said, I'm taking over this situation. And how did it end up for you? How did it turn out for you? 
to receive instruction from the Lord. We have to humble ourselves. We have to surrender. We have to submit. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear or with reverential awe. Serve. You know what you have to do to serve? Guys, I know I probably sound like a broken record, but I don't care. You know what you have to do to serve? You have to humble yourself. You have to surrender. You have to submit. Rejoice with trembling. The end of verse 11. Rejoice with trembling. You know what types of people can't rejoice? People who don't care about anything. And you know why it's easy not to care about anything? Because if you don't care about anything, you can't get hurt by anything. Because if you don't care about anything, it means that you haven't been vulnerable enough to actually put somebody else's needs before your own. And so therefore, you are incapable of rejoicing. People, what, so in that case, what is required of us to rejoice? Well, we have to care about something. We actually actually have to be vulnerable enough. We have to humble ourselves. We have to surrender ourselves. We have to submit ourselves to the authority of the Lord. We have to be vulnerable enough to put the needs of somebody else above the needs of our own, to put God and his king, Jesus, at the, at the, on the throne of our hearts in order for us to rejoice. If we don't do that, then you'll never rejoice. Verse 12, pay homage to the Son. In other translations say, kiss the sun. In the, ancient, in the ancient Near East, you would kiss the ring of the king or the scepter of the king or the feet of the king or the ground before the feet of the king. And guys, you know what's required? To pay homage to the sun? To kiss the feet of the, of the king? Humility. Surrender. Submission. Surrender leads to flourishing. Rebellion leads to destruction. Here's how I know. Look at what happens if you rebel. Pay homage to the son, verse 12, or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. Surrender leads to flourishing Rebellion leads to destruction. Then the final verse, all who take refuge in him are happy. There it is. If you want to be happy, and again, we're not talking about some trite, paper-thin, dead leaf, crumbled up type of happiness. We're talking about happiness is not want. Happiness is the freedom from want. We're talking about a deep-rooted, deep-seated happiness that goes beyond circumstances so that if you're in the valley of the shadow of death, you can actually be happy enough not to fear evil because you know that Yahweh is with you. Do you want that? Then the invitation for you is take refuge, surrender. Let everything go. We live in a culture that the lie says you have to get rid of authority in your life in order to be truly happy. And I am here to tell you guys, I'm here to just tell you what Psalm 2 and the entire corpus of Scripture is telling you, is that true flourishing, to live how we were intended and designed and created to live at our fullest potential comes when we release our own control in our lives and we submit to the one who deserves it all. And now we haven't done this in a while, um, but I want to end this way. And I'm going to end with some silence here. Um, probably like two minutes. And I know it might be, some, there's some new people here, so welcome. Uh, this might be uncomfortable, but I want to end with silence because I want to give us time and space to let the Spirit bring to mind ways in which we are not submitting. 
but rather we were rebelling. Bring to mind ways in which we can surrender, steps we can take, people we can apologize to, areas in our lives that we can just release control over to God. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to I'm gonna pray, and then when I'm done praying, I'm going to give us a, a, a minute or two, maybe even more, of silence. And then when I'm done, Tom's going to come up, and he's going to um, lead us through the elements of communion together. So let's pray. Father, Father, we are grateful for your love. God, I ask that we would take refuge in you. We would take refuge in you, and you alone would make us happy. The happiness that you promise, the flourishing that you promise, that despite where we are in life, we're not rebelling against you, but we're flourishing. God, bring to my Holy Spirit right now, I ask that you bring to mind ways in which we're rebelling. We're rebelling like the nations and the peoples and the kings and the rulers in ways in which, Lord, that we can humble ourselves. We can submit to you. God, bring that to mind, we pray right now. We love you, Father. And we pray all this in your Son's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at com, or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Mm-hmm.